2: Thanks for listening to this podcast from Walks Around Britain. For more information, our terms of use, and to click through to see the show notes on our blog with photographs, videos, and links to related sites, please visit walksaroundbutton.co.uk. On the thirteenth edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast, a health body says walking should be the norm for short journeys. We discover walking in the Scottish wilderness, we find out about the new waymarkers on the coast-to-coast route, and...
3: You will have something that is more the moment open to the public, and if they would be by, it, then that would always be the case, and I think that would be a real
2: retrograde move. Cameron McNeish tells us about unwelcome plans for Cape Wrath. Hello and welcome to the 13th edition of the Walks Around Britain podcast. I'm Andrew White and I'm your guide for the next 30 minutes of walking and the great outdoors on our podcast. And before we kick off, a very happy new year to you from all the team here at Walks Around Britain. I do hope you managed to get out to have some winter walks amidst all the rain which was Christmas 2012 here in Britain. Don't forget there's always inspiration of places to go walking on our website walksaroundbritain.co.uk. Now, we all know how good walking is for us, how it benefits the mind, body and spirit, but at the end of November, the body which advises the NHS said that walking and cycling must be the norm for short journeys. The National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, or NICE, said that people should shun their cars if a trip could be done in 15 or 20 minutes on foot or by bike. It said the approach was needed to combat the silent epidemic of inactivity posing a risk to the health of people in England. And to tell us more about the guidance is the Chair of Physical Activity for Health at the University of Edinburgh, Professor Nanette Murtry. Nanette, thanks for coming on the podcast. Can you explain what NICE are recommending?
1: Well, the the flavour of these recommendations is to try and get some coordinated action at the local authority level um, to help individuals walk and cycle more. And the messages about how physical activity is good for people's health is not new, and the documents that support that are extensive now. But what the guidance is trying to say is, look, it's not just the role of the individual, that is part of the issue, but it's the role of the local authority to make safe and attractive places for people to walk and cycle. It's perhaps the role of the police to help ensure that people feel it is safe, It's perhaps the role of the transport authorities to create cycle lanes and advanced stops for cyclists and for people to walk in safe and well-lit areas. And, of course, it's the role of education to help educate our children towards achieving these in the long run. So the guidance is trying to pull together all these different strands that can affect whether the decision for people to, to walk or cycle.
2: We've made it more difficult for ourselves, really, by allowing more out-of-town shopping centres and presiding over the gradual breakup, I suppose, of our town centres has not helped people get out walking more, has it?
1: Yes, well, we know from research that when there are places that people can walk to, that destinations such as local shops and railway stations and bus stations and school are within a reasonable distance, let's say 15 to 20 minutes walk, then people are much more likely to do it. And so thinking of uh, maybe a decade ago of building out-of-town entertainment and shopping centres has probably made it much harder for people to consider any active journey to those kind of destinations. And I think that thinking is stopping and towns are realising that this isn't good for the city centre because all the shops are, are now having to close because their businesses are are being affected by that and of course it therefore isn't good for seeing people coming in and out of the town centre on their feet. When more people are walking past shops, retailers say that's when they make their most business. So I think there'll be a change in that thinking again and it certainly hasn't helped physical activity levels if people are really have no choice but to drive to a destination.
2: And I think there's a problem also when you have the mindset for walking and cycling, too. My family holiday every year at Centre Parks, and we love to go and walk around and cycle around all the places there. And we come back really fired up, wanting to do this at home. But then you realise the whole infrastructure of this country makes it so difficult to do that safely as a family.
1: Yes, the NICE, the watchdog, if you like, who have issued the guidance on walking and cycling now, also issued guidance about how to promote a more positive environment for physical activity a couple of years ago. And really what is being said at the moment is that both of those things need to be taken into consideration, the environment needs to be improved and we need a lot more local encouragements for people to take advantage of the environment. And I think for town planners, you know, that environment can't change overnight, but there are lots of incentives for local authorities to build more kilometres of cycle lanes, for example, and to help people use them safely by teaching children bikeability skills at school. Uh, So, efforts are happening, it's not going to change overnight, but there's a realisation that both the environment and a personal incentive or motivation towards being more active is needed.
2: Is it really a case that those adults are a bit of a lost cause now, and, and our focus should be on educating our children about the benefits of walking and cycling? Should that be where we're concentrating on now?
1: Well, I mean, a lot of the focus should be, rightly, on educating children about how much physical activity they need to do for health or about how driving to school or being driven to school might be using up fuel and might create high carbon emissions for a family and how walking might offset that and about the skills of walking and cycling. But it's never too late for people to take up activity. And we've done walking programs recently with people in their 80s and 90s. So they may not be walking as fast as younger adults, but they're still getting all the health benefits of the walk itself and being social with other people uh, and being out in the fresh air. People seem to really value being out in the fresh air.
2: Lynette, thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you very much.
2: And there are links to the full guidance on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog, which is at blog.walkthroundbritain.co.uk. Now, 2013 marks the 40th anniversary of Alfred Rainwright's famous coast-to-coast walk. First set out in 1973 in his guidebook, A Coast-to-Coast Walk, the route is a 192-mile long-distance footpath in Northern England, passing through three contrasting national parks, the Lake District, the Yorkshire Dales and the North York Moors National Park. It is possibly Britain's most popular long-distance walk, with an estimated 7,000 walkers every year making the trek from St B's Head on the west coast to Robin Hood's Bay on the east. Well, in this anniversary year comes the news that the Wainwright Society are to be waymarking the route with signs featuring Wainwright's AW signature. And to tell us more is Derek Cockle from the Wainwright Society. Derek, how did all this come about?
0: Earlier this year, the Society was in discussions with the local authorities along the route of the coast-to-coast. First of all, the society agreed to accept what they call being the responsible organisation for this particular walk. One of the criteria that the local authorities have is that that walks can't be waymarked unless there is an organisation or individuals that will take responsibility for the walk that they will promote the walk, they will publicise the walk, they will monitor the route of the walk, so if there's any access problems along the way, they get re- reported to the local authority. It's not not the task of the responsible organisation to replace styles, that sort of thing, but just to report if there are access problems.
2: So the society has taken upon that
0: task? We did. but That was the, sort of the, the first part, because the, the society has been keen to uh, have Wainwrights walk Waymark for a number of years, and earlier this year, at a meeting, an agreement was reached with all of the local authorities that the route could be Waymarked. Um where we are at the moment is, is, is trying to um, determine um, a definitive line for the route because some of the, the route isn't actually on um, public rights of way still. Despite revisions that have taken place, there are, there are still various places where the route isn't exactly on a, a definitive right of way, and the authorities won't waymark it unless it is completely free of any access issues with uh, local landowners.
2: Right, because there have been several revisions to the route over the years, haven't there?
0: I think the first major revision was in 1994 when a number of issues were um, addressed and then Chris Jesty who's one of our members he has produced what is a second edition he's completely rewalked the route and the main changes to the route have been in the Vale of Mowbray section where there was Wainwright originally had eight miles of road walking because he was unable to find a suitable route across of right away I think if you read as a original book he mentions things like barbed wire and cows (laughs) which uh, I think he wasn't he wasn't too fond of either
2: (laughs) not best on the walk now
0: what Chris has done is reroute that section off the eight miles of road and onto public rights of way mainly to the sort of south of Wainwright's route
2: so does that enable all the route to the Waymark then
0: where we are at the moment is that there's agreement with the Yorkshire Dales National Park, North Yorkshire County Council, the North York Moors National Park, those those three local authorities, uh, which it, more at the eastern half of the route, that's now all been agreed and the society has designed way markers which have been approved and they're little stickers that go under a perspex window in the middle of the official right of way, waymark, and that section will will be way marked probably during this winter uh, and what we're hoping is there's still a few issues on the western side with Cumbria County Council and the Lake District National Park where there are, I think there's about half a dozen places where there are just um, access issues to agree the definitive line that where it will be actually on a right of way.
2: It's a little bit ironic the area AW is most well known for is the area which is proving a little bit more problematic
0: Yes, I, I, I'm not really sure why that is. I mean, as I say, you know, they have rules that they have to abide by and the line has to go, you know, if it's going across private land. It must be agreed uh, with the landowner. I mean, sometimes these can be um, permitted rights of way, and sometimes they can change the designation of a route. So it becomes a right of way with the agreement of the landowner. That's how I think it works.
2: Yes, obviously the landowner has to decide, and then it's pretty well set, isn't it?
0: Well, that's right, yes. I mean, there are lots of places where people walk, which if you look on a map, they're not defined right away. The estimate is that between five and 7,000 people a year are walking this route, and they are walking the route, that that is defined in Wainwright's book. Yes. Uh, so, in fact, it is happening, but you can't define that by waymarking it, because once you've done that, you've given official ret- recognition to the route.
2: It does surprise people when they find out that it isn't actually a national trail. It's a long-distance trail, and until these waymarkers go in, it really hasn't been recognised at all in any no. shape sense, so form, has it?
0: No, it hasn't. And, and, and the long term aim of the society is to have the route marked on Ordnance Survey maps. I mean, actually, Ordnance Survey did bring out a number of years ago a sort of two part map, an east side and a west side. Um, but they discontinued printing it a number of years ago. I think what I've been told is that the, the route can't be marked on an Ordnance Survey map until all of these issues regarding access are agreed with the local authorities. The other big problem is going to be the crossing of the A19. Because that, since Wainwright's day, they, I mean, Wainwright himself, in his, in his original book, commented on the traffic of, on the A19. But, of course, <laughs> over the years, it's got much worse.
2: Nothing like it now, is now.
0: I, I suspect that unless some sort of footbridge is put in over the A19, there's got to be some way around this particular problem. I can't see that this route will actually get marked on Ordnance Survey maps. It's a particular problem.
2: Yes, it is. Yes. Perhaps a designated crossing might be the best way.
0: Right. Could be. It could be.
2: Interesting. Derek, thanks for joining us.
0: Right. Thank you, Andrew. It's been uh, lovely to talk to you.
2: And the Wainwright Society has events planned to mark the 40th anniversary of the Coast to Coast. And we'll be doing several specials across the year, too. Well, once you've done the Coast to Coast or the Wainwrights, you might be looking for another challenge. And what better one than the Wilderness, which is the Scottish Highlands and Islands? With its different access ethos, these remote and beautiful regions of Scotland are perfect for those wanting to discover the most wild experiences the British Isles has to offer. And to help us through the Highlands and Islands is Stevie Christie, a director of Scottish walking holiday experts, Wilderness Scotland. Stevie, welcome to the podcast. If someone wants to go from being a Lakeland walker to walking in Scotland... Where should they go?
4: In terms of destination, there's obviously loads of choice in Scotland. And one of the nice things about Scotland, I suppose like England as well, is the great diversity of scenery. Uh, You get in different parts. So you've got, for example, Cairngorm National Park, which is the largest national park in the UK. Five of the six highest mountains in the UK, but big rolling hillsides cut by deep glacial valleys. And then if you just drive an hour west, you get to the west coast, you get much more rugged and, uh, and narrow ridges and peaks uh, really different experience overall but you know, if you go right up north again which is maybe you know, an extra couple of hours in the car completely different landscape and one that most people in the UK perhaps wouldn't even recognise as being part of the UK it's just a very wild desolate and incredibly beautiful place to go
2: and when you look at the map you see that vast swathe of hills and, and mountains across the north of Scotland you realise there might even be places on there which haven't been explored even now
4: yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it's everyone likes a wee tick list, and and obviously the Monroes is the, the best known one. And certainly, you know, if you're climbing a Monroe in Scotland, you more than likely share that peak with some other walkers, unless you're out of season or midweek or something. But if you're in the summer time at the weekend, most Monroes are going to have a few people up them. But as soon as you venture away onto a smaller mountain or or walk in some of the more remote valleys and glens, you can really find isolation very very easily. And yeah if you just pick a random quarry or a small side valley you might even find yourself tripping on new ground
2: That's a big problem with the lakes isn't it You do kind of share the mountains with many others
4: Yeah you do and you know it's a, it's a kind of double edged sword it's nice to have that sort of uh uh banter in the hills and meet some other walkers and have some have some chat with them but at the same time you know we are going to the hills to escape most of his urban lives and we do like the isolation but certainly even in the more popular a- areas of Scotland perhaps in Glencoe or somewhere like that you'll still find there's le- a lot less walkers uh, than in most of the Lakeland walks Ben Nevis is, is the one exception if you go there on a weekend in the summertime you're, <laughs> it's, it's a line of people going up <laughs> and down but away from there you can, you can find isolation pretty easily.
2: And then of course there's the amazing number of islands which themselves are, are fantastic places to walk
4: Oh they really do yeah and for me if if visitors are coming to Scotland I always say to them you do try to include at least one island in your itinerary because there's so much variety out there and often when you when you arrive on an island it is a bit like going back to Scotland in the the 60s or the 50s because the the life really has stood still to an extent in terms of people's sort of more relaxed pace and uh, just I guess their outlook on life but there's some fantastic walking you know everything from I guess the Sky Cooling is the most famous one, but that's it's really quite exceptional for, for people with a real head for heights and, uh, you know, pretty experienced walkers. But even on the other islands, the smaller islands like Egg or, or Rum, the Outer Hebrides, even really low-lying islands like, like or Tyree, there's wonderful walking both on the coast and, uh, and amongst the hills, which may be a bit smaller than on the mainland. But when you get up on top of a hill, even if it's just two or 300 metres high, you've got a 360-degree view, all around, and it's a fantastic experience.
2: What do you think a walker who is going from the Dales or the lakes needs in additional equipment or gear to be safe in the wilds of Scotland?
4: Um, They might not need anything in particular extra. Assuming they're well equipped in the lakes, uh, you're obviously going to need a good set of waterproofs, uh, you know, jacket, trousers, and leg gaiters as well. And, you know, most most people would wear Gore-Tex, but it doesn't doesn't have to be, but certainly you want something that's going to keep you dry and uh, and it's going to be breathable. You're going to need to have certainly good, uh, sturdy boots. Uh, you don't really want to be walking up any of the mountains wearing trainers or even walking shoes. You really need ankle support. Because one of the big differences between walking in in, the, in England and walking in Scotland is that we don't have so many cultivated paths, if you like. If you, right. if you choose a, a Monroe, you might assume that because there's hundreds or thousands of people going up the Monroes over the course of the year, that the trail's going to be maintained. It's only on very, very few mountains, and usually just for short stretches on those mountains that the trail has actually been built. Most of the time, you're just walking across open mountainside, so you would really need ankle support in your boots, and that, that's a very important issue, I would say.
2: And navigation is very important.
4: Yeah, certainly, and again, I suppose it's maybe down to the lack of paths and, and waymarking on Scotland's mountains. It's just something that, that we don't do. We have this... Um, A right to roam in Scotland it's enshrined in law and because of that we can you know we can walk anywhere we're not restricted to walking on the trails even if they do exist and because of that when most people climb the mountains they just go basically whichever route they want but because of that yeah of course you do need to be able to use a map and compass efficiently a lot of people do carry a GPS these days which is certainly a very good tool but it shouldn't replace your ability to read a map and compass because there's a lot of conditions whereby your GPS won't function properly or it may even just be that you've not used it for a while and the batteries run out. So you really do need to be able to be very competent with a map and compass, uh, even even on a good sunny day because it, it's not difficult to get lost if, you, if you're not sure where you are. We offer a, a range of, of guided walking holidays and various other uh, activity-based holidays such as sea kayaking or canoeing, which again for a lot of walkers are... A really great way to explore the wild places in a different kind of style, and actually, those types of activities are popular again with people who perhaps used to backpack a lot and go wild camping, but these days perhaps find the uh, carrying a rucksack for 15 miles is a bit a bit strenuous if you can just pop it in a canoe or a kayak. <laughs> That takes the load, and you can still get that really wild uh, experience without straining your back too much. But in terms of what we bring, I mean, Wilderness Scotland organises effectively all, all the parts of your holidays, your your accommodation, your your transfers. Um, but most importantly for us, it, it's spending time with one of our. Our guides that, well obviously they've got their their qualifications, but beyond that they're just really experienced in the mountains of Scotland. They've got a huge amount of knowledge about the the environment, Scottish history, culture, and it's kind of like the difference between walking up a glen and, and seeing the views, but not really appreciating perhaps where you are, and then walking up a glen with somebody who knows the history behind it, is able to tell you about what life was like in the glen 200 years ago, even if it's a deserted glen now, it probably wasn't always that way. And just understanding a bit more about the environment, looking at the plants and and spotting some wildlife. So it really sort of brings a a hike to life if you're with a a really good guide.
2: Stevie, thanks for joining us on the podcast.
4: No problem at all. a pleasure.
2: And you can find links to Wilderness Scotland on the show notes to this edition of the podcast on our blog. Now, staying in Scotland, the most northwesterly point on the mainland of Britain is Cape Wrath the end of the recently launched Scottish National Trail, and perhaps most famous to many as one of the areas mentioned in the inshore waters forecast part of Radio 4's shipping forecast. Most of Cape Wrath is actually owned by the Ministry of Defence, and recently the MOD has entered into talks to buy the 58 acres of the famous peninsula it doesn't already own. So what does this mean for walkers? Well, joining me now to talk about this is Cameron McNeish, Cameron, thanks for coming on the podcast. Tell us more about Cape Wrath.
3: Well, the Cape Wrath Peninsula has, you know, a large part of the Cape Wrath Peninsula has been owned by the MOD uh, for quite a long number of years now. And, um, and, and there are restrictions at various times of the year when uh, big military exercises are, are, are going on. Basically, they use it as a sort of bombing range and um, particularly using missiles from the sea and um, it's never been a, a huge inconvenience, but there is a little corner of the Cape Brath Peninsula, which is the Cape Brath itself, where the lighthouse is. The lighthouse was built by Robert Louis Stevenson's father, so it has some historical significance. And there are mm. some buildings there, one of which is now being used as a as a cafe called the It's called the Old Zone Cafe, and it's the only a cafe in Britain that's opened seven days a week, uh, 52 weeks of the year. A <clears throat> nice couple run it, um, and that. The 50 acres is not owned by the the MOD, but is owned by the, the Lighthouse Board. Right. Um, and now the MOD want to buy that little area as well, so that they own the, the whole of the peninsula. And they want to have some armaments put in place. They want to build some barracks for forces and whatnot. And our great fear is that the access that we have to that corner of Scotland will be lost for even short periods of time. We have an area there that under the Land Reform Act of Scotland, everybody can go and access is open. Um, if the MOD buy it, then we'll lose that right of access uh, and the MOD can choose to close down the open peninsula uh, whenever they want. I don't think that's great for access. I don't think it's good for, for business in that part of um, the Scottish Highlands. I don't think it's good for, um, for Scotland.
2: Now, there is a plan by the local community to buy the land instead, isn't there?
3: Yes, the local community, the Dunness Development Association, have registered interest in, in buying out the estate. Um, I've got a sneaky feeling that the Scottish Government themselves may well oppose the purchase um, of, the, uh, of this, this part of Cape Rat, um, largely because um, the MOD and the Lighthouse Board have never been devolved to the Scottish Parliament. So the, these will be decisions taken in Westminster. Uh, and I can't see a Scottish National Party government here in Scotland uh, allowing that to happen. So um, my, my guess is that the Scottish government will intervene um, at one point. And it may well be they'll give the support to the Dunness Development Association. And, and the people up there are, are terrified because there is a, a successful little ferry and bus that runs and takes tourists to Cape Wrath. Um, And, of course, those jobs would be lost if um, the whole of the Cape Mac Prince was closed down. And that would have an ongoing effect on the the tourism potential of of Darnness and that that whole area. And, you know, it's right on the very, very edge of Britain up there. And the folk up there need all the help they can get in terms of tourism. Uh, And I really don't think this is a very clever move by the MOD.
2: Of course, it's the end of the Scottish National Trail, but Radio 4 listeners will know it too from the shipping
3: forecast. It is indeed yes, itscapebrath yes, yeah it's uh, it's north for turning point, and when the Viking invaders used to come down from the north uh, that was their point of uh, turning round Britain uh, and heading uh, south down the west coast of Scotland and into northern England so um great historical significance, I think it's an iconic spot um and, and rivals John O'Groats Groats and Land's End as you know as great sort of end to end um destinations. Um, it, it's, it's a marvellous spot in terms of the rugged grandeur, and many, many hundreds of people every year enjoy the walk from uh, Sandwood Bay north to Cape Wrath, and then they get the bus and the ferry back over to Dunnes. So, uh, I think it, it, it could. There's the possibility that could rob an off lot of people of of the pleasure of walking up there. I say it could because I don't. I, I wouldn't suppose for a moment the MOD would close down the land indefinitely, um, but. We have something that is, at the moment, open to the public, and if the MOD buy it, then that would always be the case. And I think that would be a real retrograde move.
2: It'll be something we should all keep our eye on.
3: Yeah, it's, it's going to be ongoing. This will run on for a wee while, I think.
2: Cameron, many thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Well, that's it from another podcast. If you want to make sure you always receive the latest edition, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or follow us on Audioboo. Until the next edition, thanks for listening and happy walking.